Welcome. I'm Anne-Marie Ingtuff Larson. And I'm James Bray. And this is the World Economic Forum's podcast, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. One of the risks that people have talked about is the idea that when we make an intelligent machine, what we have typically done in the past is to say that the machine simply carries out whatever objective that we give it. That sounds perfectly natural, right? We give the machine instruction, mow the lawn, fetch the coffee. Now, um, one problem that comes about is that machines, if you if you program in the, them in the traditional way, will take the instruction literally. So if you say fetch the coffee, that becomes the life's mission of the robot. And in particular, it would take preemptive steps to prevent anything from interfering with that mission. For example, uh, being switched off by somebody who was up unhappy with what the machine was doing. And this is a general property of classical, classically defined AI systems. They, they will take steps to prevent themselves from being switched off if they have an objective that can only be achieved if they're switched on, right? which is pretty much anything. So such, such a system is only beneficial if the objective is correct. And unfortunately, fetching the coffee is not a correct objective because it doesn't mean fetch the coffee at all costs. Right? It doesn't mean you get to run over people on the way and kill everyone else in Starbucks in case they accidentally switch you off to a human. It means a whole lot of things more than just fetch the coffee. It means you know, don't even think of paying more than 20 euros for the coffee. You know, don't bump into anybody. Don't push in the line. You know, don't destroy yourself on, you know, in your desperation to get the coffee. So I send my AI personal assistant down to Starbucks and I end up with a scene from a Tarantino movie. Awkward. That's a vision from well-known AI expert Stuart Russell of Berkeley. Spoiler alert, he does have a solution. If there is one technology that really defines the fourth industrial revolution, it's probably going to be artificial intelligence. It's certainly the one that gets the most attention. Every month, a new breakthrough is breathlessly reported. And Hollywood has had a few goes at AI, some more thoughtful than others. With all that attention, however, and I hate to do a disservice to my fellow journalists and storytellers here, there does come a certain amount of, well, let's just be generous and go with hype. We are here to try and inject a bit of sobriety. Where really is artificial intelligence on its journey to taking over the world? Is superintelligence something we need to be worried about? Is the latest wave of breakthroughs really the beginning of a new dawn? Or, to mix my metaphors, just another false peak for AI researchers? Here's Jeremy Howard, a deep learning expert and entrepreneur who founded Fast.ai to make the power of deep learning accessible to a wider range of people. For him, as for everyone I spoke to, the new wave of advances is the real deal. You can use Skype today to speak to somebody in English and they'll hear it in German and vice versa, and it works pretty well. And in fact, Google now, with their new Pixel Buds, even will do that you know, on the earbuds themselves, um, real-time translation of speech. And the, the speed at which you see it happening, it's, it's pretty amazing. Like we, we were amazed last year when the best Go player in the world was beaten 3-0, using a deep learning-based algorithm, which learnt from looking at millions of previous human games, Google announced that they now have a 
new version of this algorithm, which beat the previous version 100 games to zero and learnt without looking at any human games entirely just by playing against itself in just three days. So, I mean, the, you, can, you can clearly see the, that this is doing things that previously not only weren't possible, but, you know, everybody I spoke to a few years ago was saying it would be hundreds of years, if ever, before a, a human player of Go could be beaten. So the, the kind of expectations about what, same as self-driving cars, by the way, you know, about yeah. uh, 2010 or a bit before, most people I spoke to were saying, you know, they weren't sure that was something that will ever exist. So, yeah, you can see clearly that things are being done right now, you know, in a small number of years that people were saying might never be possible. This is exciting for people who've been predicting big leaps in AI for a long time. So what is driving this surge of advancement? Why should artificial intelligence, which, after all, has been around for some time now, suddenly take off? Pretty much all of the interesting advances we've seen in AI in the last three or four years have been um, entirely due to deep learning. The promise of deep learning is that we can solve the kinds of problems which previously have been limited by human capability. So things involving perception, such as uh, sight and hearing, and things which kind of involve intuition, such as playing Go. What's different now is that uh, with uh, machine learning uh, approaches, together with the exponentially increasing computing power, And together with the exponential increasing amount of available data, these three things together contributed to give AI the perception capabilities that it did not have before. If you want to deploy an AI system in a very controlled environment where you can predict exactly all the possible cases that can happen in the you know, in, in that environment, all the possible scenarios, then you don't need the machine learning approach because you can have a set of rules that say, if you are in this situation, then behave in this way. If you are in this other situation, then behave in this other way. And if you can list all the possible situations, that's all you have. And this is completely accurate because if you assume that you have all the possible situations, it's completely accurate, it's completely explainable because whatever you decide, then you can, you can see the, the explanation why you got to that particular decision. But most, in most cases, this is, does not happen. You don't have this list of all possible situations, a complete list in, a real, in real time in a real-life environment, in a real-life scenario. So you have many things that you may not be able to expect and to predict. And so in that, in that case, the, the situation is so full of uncertainty and ill-defined that you cannot use that rule-based approach. Or if you use it, then it's going to be very brittle and not robust or very inaccurate. And so that's why the machine learning approach, which basically amounts to say, I'm not going to tell you what to do. The algorithm is going to learn what to do based on the data that I'm feeding you for training. That's Francesca Rossi, a professor of computer science at the University of Padova, currently on leave at IBM Watson. But if you're less interested in the technical details and more interested in what AI can do for you, the promise of machine learning is vast. 
we're only beginning to see the many ways it might change our lives for the better. The lowest hanging fruit is, you know, healthcare. You know, healthcare is based on uh, being able to handle uh, different kinds of data, like images of various kinds, uh, text, you know, reports, and you know, uh, doctors, you know, diagnosis, and so. On. So, an AI that can make sense of this data. And there are already a lot of systems that are able to do that, and um, sometimes even better than, than, than humans. They can really help doctors to make better decisions in their job, you know, to find the, the, the most appropriate diagnosis, and, so, and then to decide the best therapy for a patient. So really, healthcare is one area where, you know, one domain where, you know, everybody, many people are really trying, you know, to apply their AI systems and to deliver in that space. For example, I created a, uh, the first company to apply deep learning to medicine called uh, Analytic, which uses deep learning to look at medical imaging scans like CTs and MRIs and so forth and can make judgments about where, where the issues are and what, whether there are issues thousands of times faster than the radiologist and more accurately as well. And so the promise there is that you could use that along with a portable medical imaging device in the developing world to bring modern medical diagnostics to everybody in the world. The only realistic way to actually provide modern medicine to most of the world is through AI, specifically deep learning. So and that's an example of the promise in medicine. The promise in education is similar. Uh, we can have extremely dynamic flexible algorithms that are responding to every individual student to give them the optimal problem sets or information they need at every moment. Um, it's similar in dealing with world hunger for handling things like precision agriculture. The next big thing will probably be systems that actually understand language well enough to um, engage in a conversation and to keep track of what you're doing by you know, listening to your conversations, by reading your email, and then they can function as a useful personal assistant. Because that's been really the biggest obstacle to computers being directly useful to ordinary people, is that they have no common language. Uh, so they, you know, they're not able to teach people. Um, you know, tutoring systems have been attempted for 50 years, and they haven't made much progress because they don't speak a language. They don't understand what the user is saying and they don't know how to explain anything. But once that channel opens up and you have a reasonable natural language interface uh, and the system can, for example, read textbooks and have a, you know, a basic understanding of the material that it's trying to teach, then uh, all of a sudden you're going to have massive capability for AI systems to improve the quality of education all over the world. So, so personal assistants and direct education are two huge applications that will come out. That sounds pretty cool, I guess. I mean, I wonder how I'm going to feel about an AI reading my emails. On the other hand, how great to stop actually reading my own emails. It sounds like me and my AI might get on really well. Just don't send her out for coffee, right? That said, AI can be compared to other incredibly powerful technologies, such as the One Ring, Magic Lamp or the Death Star, Fine in the right hands, but quickly alarming in the wrong ones. There is a long list of possible uses for AI that would inflict great harm on people. Indeed, 
it's already being adopted by the dark side. The second area is the power of humans when they are augmented with AI becomes much greater. And that leads to all kinds of problems. Um, we're already seeing some in the US where there's a lot of discussion recently about how precision targeting on social media allowed Russia to, you know, um, create, for example, fake black activist groups and then target them to the people who will be most disgusted by them very carefully in order to influence their vote. It's a great example of the kind of uh, negative potential of, in this case, even reasonably simple machine learning algorithms and the power of people with data and money. So this can certainly be used to cause a lot of problems. The more power you get, the more you can get more data, and the more data you get, the more you can get better algorithms and so forth. It's Yeah, and when people get this kind of power, they don't generally react to it very well. You know, we, we know that people with more power and money uh, become less empathetic over time. It is hard to overstate the potential power of the tools. Just as the promise of AI is likely to be so much more than we can even imagine now, so the potential threat has to be deeply considered. But wait, there's more. Here's Fab Nivy, serial technology entrepreneur. Yeah, and I mean, it's not that inconceivable to imagine that, you know, you could build an AI for every American and every person, and you could have that AI learn how that person thinks and reacts, and then it could test itself. And then once it's tested itself, it knows that it works. And you end up with an AI that understands you better than you understand yourself. And uh, there's a, the guy that invented Wonder Woman, who also invented this uh, assessment called the DISC personality assessment, uh, was a really brilliant guy. And one of the things he said is that if somebody understands themselves better than you understand yourself, they have an advantage over you. If they understand you better than you understand them, they have an advantage over you. But if they understand you better than you understand yourself, they can enslave you. And that's what an AI can do, is it can learn to understand you better than you understand you. And I think that's what Alan is thinking when he's like, the AI is coming after us. Not because it's coming after us, but someone's going to use it <laughs> to come after you. And you won't know. Of course, there is no need for malign intent for AI to cause great harm. But given the scope of the technology and its applications, even small issues with its creation can have hugely prejudicial consequences for the end user. And despite our best efforts, we can't assume creators are necessarily going to have society's best interests at heart. That's kind of hilarious. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Particularly in this field, you know, in AI. Well, I'm only there's a huge dearth of people with a humanities background, you know. So we're talking about, you know, kind of on the whole, classic computer nerds. Yeah, I know a lot of these people, and you know, I mean, it's most of my friend group, I guess. But I'm, you know, they are not. I mean, they're not bad people, but they're not at all familiar with basic concepts of things like implicit bias or, you know, how how humans behave and how humans behave in groups and how things you do influence that behavior and, you know, the kind of basics, sociology and psychology and history. And they're not, yeah, I mean, I, would, I wouldn't say they're that interested either. I mean, the this this environment around Silicon Valley is very, very, very focused on getting 
getting venture capital and growing and getting users and that that's where all the metrics are. So no, I wouldn't at all say that you should expect this group to somehow have either the interest in or ability to ensure positive social impact from their innovations. So it's easy to see how somebody designing some AI in their incubator in Silicon Valley can create something whose end use has an effect that person might strongly object to. Here's a classic real-world example from Erika Kochi, a humanitarian and technologist who co-leads UNICEF's innovation unit. Imagine you're uh, a woman in India and uh, you want to apply for a line of credit or for, uh, or for you know, to buy a house or, or to buy something. And if machine learning is applied to that process, which it already is to a certain extent and will only be in the future, chances are that you will be much less able to access that line of credit than a man for a couple reasons. One, because there's not as much data on you as a female as there are on men. Usually, um, especially in poorer households, a man will own the phone, and even if his wife uses it, it's registered in his name. So a lot of the data that it's producing uh, as a byproduct will be associated with him and not the female. Secondly, women usually earn a lot less than men, and so if you're weighting the algorithm to be about you know your earnings... Even if uh, women, uh, which have, sh- have shown to be, are much better at paying back their loans than men are, just sort of generally across the board, if it's weighted where uh, earnings or your salary is sort of a key component of the algorithm that's developed, it will show that, or the machine will learn, that men are much stronger candidates for that line of credit than women. So you're basically doubly biased, right, if you're a woman and applying for a line of credit because the data that you're feeding it and the way that the algorithm is constructed, even if it wasn't maliciously constructed as such, will show that you are not a viable candidate, even though within sort of, if you look at it from a contextual point of view, you probably are. Most people in the field seem to be agreed that encoding discrimination and bias is going to be, and already is, a major challenge for the widespread use of algorithms. For example, in the justice system, and we're already starting to see that happen, when, particularly in America, you know, the, the, the justice system is largely run by private interests. For example, most of the prisons are privatized. So when private companies have the tools to do this kind of proactive policing and profiling and sentencing and so forth that can really deeply embed existing biases um, and kind of hide them behind the apparent veneer of modern technology. So I think there's a whole raft of issues here as well. The fact that, uh, you know, uh, machine learning approaches uh, are heavily based on the data set that you use to train them. And so that means that you have to be careful about how you uh, select this data set. Because if the data set is not representative enough of the phenomenon that you want to 
represent or solve a problem about. Then also the decision-making capabilities of the AI system trained on that data set will not be representative and will be biased. Another thing is that the media talk about, and I think correctly, is that we should try to make sure that every AI system has also explanation capabilities to explain why certain decisions are made or certain decisions are suggested to the human decision maker and not others. For example, if you ask for a loan and uh, your application is not approved because of an automated algorithm, then you should be able to know why. So that is also something that uh, for some approaches to AI is not that clear how to do it or not clear. And so there are a lot of, you know, people working on that. Of course, Nobody's saying humans are doing a great job of making decisions free of bias. We tend to have absolutely no idea about the biases running through our own brain's decision-making algorithms, either as individuals or societies. For Francesca, this is one of the big things AI can actually help with. Mostly, you know, uh, machines really trying to uh, enhance our capabilities, you know, augment our capabilities, especially our decision-making capabilities. You know, we know that uh, we, as humans, uh, we are very good at uh, asking the right questions. Know, and posing some problems, but then I think that uh, we are sometimes kind of limited in our you know, capabilities of answering in, in the best way these questions that we pose, the problem that we want to, the problems that we want to solve. And so uh, this is where machines can actually help us. Uh, first of all, by making sense of huge amounts of data that we alone with our brain would not be able to digest, assimilate, uh, you know, and connect to each other and so on, but also really to, to avoid our cognitive biases that we have. Uh, our inconsistencies, our noise that we introduce in the decision making. And so there are many things that machines can do much better than us and we should exploit that. On the other hand, I mean, there are many things that we do much better. And so that's why I think that we really need to exploit these complementary ways of thinking, of, of, you know, doing things. For a more dramatic kind of threat from AI, you can't beat autonomous weapons. In fact, a lot of people in the AI field see regulation of autonomous weapons as the single most urgent, real, and immediate battle on their hands. Back to Stuart Russell. Autonomous weapons is a very serious risk. There is a possibility that if these weapons are developed, and there are several countries that are pushing ahead with their development, they become a new weapon of mass destruction. Because what autonomous means is that uh, there doesn't have to be a human watching them to guide them to a, or choose a target, to guide them to the target. Um, you essentially can give them a mission and launch them and they will find targets uh, and kill them. So that means that, you know, just in the same way that we can, you know, send out spam to 500 million people at once from a single laptop, we can launch, you know, hundreds of millions of weapons from a single laptop. And that, that's the definition of a weapon of mass destruction. It's also a weapon of mass destruction that's very easy to proliferate, that's relatively low cost, that doesn't require a big military industrial complex in the way the nuclear weapons do. And so uh, I see very little reason to allow 
the development of fully autonomous weapons. Of course, there are many that see perfectly good reasons to develop them and aren't interested in getting Professor Russell's permission. But this issue isn't simply about the destructive power of a new weapon. Important principles are at stake here that feed into our general relationship with AI. Here's Wendell Wallach, scholar of and writer on technology and ethics. What most people don't understand is that autonomous weapons are not a weapon system. They're a feature set that could be added to any weapon system. There's a lot of much broader issues at stake in autonomous weaponry. For me, one of the really big ones is that we are moving in the direction of abrogating responsibility for the systems we deploy. And autonomous weapons is just a symbolic tip of that iceberg, but that can come up in any area of life. So it's not only that we abrogate responsibility or we delegate responsibility, but we also undermine our capacity to know who or what should be held responsible if something goes wrong. That's a really stupid role for humanity go down, to go down. My point is that machines making life and death decisions, that's mala and say, this ancient Roman term that meant something that was evil in itself. Let's be clear, it's evil for machines to make, make life and death choices. And perhaps someday they will have compassion or altruism or, um, or consciousness and can be held responsible for their action. But then they're no longer machines, and they should be granted some form of personhood. But until then, that's all science fiction. Which brings us neatly onto the aspect of AI that probably gets the most press of all, certainly gets most Hollywood screen time. Consciousness, superintelligence, the singularity, and all that. I've deliberately kept this short to reflect the relatively short shrift it gets from people who know what they're talking about. For now, definitely science fiction. As I said, I mean, you, you could even um, model every molecule of a human being, but it doesn't mean that you can replicate the thinking, the decision-making, everything about, you know, the, the, the behavior of that human being. And for now, I don't see it. In, I, I, I mean, I don't see something like that happening anytime soon. And again, I think it's more productive to really think about tackling the challenges that we see, because I'm sure that when we will solve the challenges that we see right now, there will be many other challenges ahead that now we cannot even imagine. Well, I'd like to mention the doomsday scenario just because I want to clear up a confusion that's occurring in the media. So the confusion has to do with mixing up the rapid rate of progress in AI with uh, the imminence of existential risk, right, of, of superintelligent machines taking over the world. The risk of superintelligent machines, I would say, is not imminent, but it is real. Just as if, you know, we detected an asteroid that was going to crash into the Earth in 75 years' time, we wouldn't say that was imminent, but we would say it was real, right? And we would start trying to figure out how to divert the asteroid or otherwise protect the Earth. And I think the same is going to be true with superintelligent AI. Unless we understand how to control it, it can be problematic to essentially create a new species that's more intelligent than us. Consciousness is, from the point of view of AI, a complete mystery. Nobody that I know of in AI is working on making machines conscious. No one has any proposal for how you might do that, or even any idea for how we might discover that we had done that. We don't know what 
makes humans conscious. We don't know for sure that other people are conscious, um, except by kind of guessing. I think we have to factor that out. And the, and the media are not helpful because almost every article uh, about AI, you know, even if it's just talking about employment issues, which is another very important set of questions, will have a picture of a Terminator robot, which makes people think that you know, anything negative in the article is really science fiction. So they're trying to sort of make it go, ooh, you're really scary, but in fact, people kind of then blow it off because it seems like it's something out of a movie. But it's not just the public. You know, I, I've talked to very high-level defense officials in the U.S. who believe that the risk from autonomous weapons is Skynet, which is utterly shocking uh, because those are the people responsible for U.S. policy in this area. And if they completely misunderstand the nature of the risks, that's a not a good situation. As with all FOIR technologies, it looks like we will need to track carefully. Jeff Mulgan of the UK's National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts has proposed that AI will require its very own regulatory body, a machine intelligence commission. The next generation of machine intelligence technologies are so powerful, potentially. The stakes are so high in terms of, of our lives, our job prospects, in terms of what could go wrong, that I think there's no doubt we will need creativity in institution building if we're going to avoid the kind of problems which have afflicted other technologies, such as nuclear power, genetically modified crops, where not enough attention was paid to uh, engaging the public and thinking through the balance of the different dimensions. And my guess is that in the next year or so, we will start seeing new institutions of this kind developing, which have to be cross-sectoral in their nature, which have to be able to deal with the rules of, of data and transparency, how to handle algorithms, how to handle all sorts of issues of, of liability uh, and fault and responsibility, because with great power has to come great responsibility. And if we don't get this right, the fourth industrial revolution simply won't happen. It will be blocked by publics who don't trust the direction of change and don't believe their governments really understand what needs to be done. But there is a responsibility on all of us to be part of this process. It is no good remaining ignorant of the roles of AI and then complaining about it later. The more informed we all are, the better we can scrutinize the industry's claims. Jeremy Howard's mission at Fast.ai is all about democratizing deep learning technologies, and with good reason. If you're a judge and you have some, you know, basic technical competence in deep learning, then when some lawyer comes along and tells you, you need to lock this person up for a long time because his sentencing guideline algorithm says so, you know enough to say, okay, well, I know that algorithm is only good, as good as the data that was put into it. So tell me exactly what data this was trained with and tell me, you know, exactly how, you know, what percentage of black people that data set says deserve longer sentences and what percentage of white people and, and so forth, you know. And that's the kind of questions we want people to be asking. Oh, and the personal assistant that kills everyone in Starbucks to get my latte? Stuart Russell has an answer for that, by the way. So we're just in the process of, of developing a new framework um, which is somewhat different from the classical way we've thought about uh, giving objectives to AI systems. And the idea is that the AI system should be actually uncertain about the true and complete objective. And in that way, because it's uncertain about the objective, 
it knows that it might be doing things wrong, right, that will make the human unhappy. If it has an underlying objective to sort of make humans happy, to maximize human well-being, then it will accept being switched off because it wants to avoid damaging human well-being. And the assumption is that humans would switch the machine off if the machine was about to do something wrong. So when you formulate it that way, you can show mathematically that, the, number one, the machine will allow, it to be self, uh, allow itself to be switched off. It has an incentive to do that. And also that the machine is provably beneficial in the sense that you are provably better off with a machine designed this way uh, than without it. Because in, essentially in the worst case, when it's completely clueless about what you want, it won't do anything. But as it starts to understand something about your preferences, it will try to help to the extent that it believes it understands what you want. You've been listening to Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution with me, James Bray. And me, Anne-Marie Ingtov Larson. Thank you for listening. Join us for the next episode where we will take a look at environmentalism. Can fourth industrial revolution technologies save us from the environmental harms inflicted by their predecessors? And if you want to know more about this topic, check out the World Economic Forum's new book, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The book is designed to give clarity to how all these exciting new technologies impact all aspects of society and empower you to engage personally in this unfolding revolution. You can buy the book on Amazon. Amazon.